Let's pray. Father, we would ask you to be our teacher now. We've just been able, Lord, to be reminded of how it is grace, 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 and grace that that changes us, that equips us, that calls us into relationship with you. And, and it's by grace that we are transformed. And as we study together, God, we pray that your grace would draw us to deeper places of faith and grace that would make us more like Jesus. Help us as we reflect together and think together and study together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for this message, I want to say a few words right at the outset because we're talking about a subject that is very, very, very close to home, close to the heart for a lot of people. Uh, maybe you're in a marriage where you've been struggling for a while. You're not sure what you want to hear about the subject of marriage and divorce. Yep, that's right. That's what we're talking about this morning. Maybe you grew up in a family and you experienced a divorce and you still still wrestle with and feel that sadness around that division of a family. Maybe you've personally experienced the pain of divorce. Uh, maybe even been in a church where they said that divorce is kind of an unforgivable sin and they made you feel like damaged goods or a second-class citizen. Whatever the case, I hope that our time together reflecting, thinking, and studying this morning will be a time that brings clarity to you around this subject and hope to you and uh, some healing perhaps even. Uh, here's why we're even studying this topic. I didn't just pull it out of thin air and go, hey, let's study divorce. You know, that's, that's not why we're talking about this. We're, <clears throat> we're actually studying Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And the passage we look at this morning is part of a section, yellow, part of a section uh, where Jesus is redefining what makes somebody a truly righteous person or what is it exactly that makes somebody a really good person. And in this section, uh, where Jesus was teaching, he started with the subject of anger, and we were actually looking at that back in November. Jesus challenges the prevailing thought of his day. The idea that a righteous person, uh, he said, with regards to anger, is not just somebody who obeys the command, thou shalt not kill, and if you haven't killed anybody, well, you know, you don't have an anger problem. No, Jesus dove right into that. You know, righteousness in that area, he said, has to do with having a heart toward people in matters where you disagree, in matters where forgiveness needs to exist, in matters where relationships are broken and rec reconciliation needs to happen. Uh, Jesus said, real righteousness means you, you have a, a propensity, a desire, a willingness to humble yourself and move into that kind of reconciliation. And then Jesus went on to the subject of sexuality, and we talked about that last week, sexuality, lust, adultery, and so. A righteous person, Jesus said, is not just somebody who avoids adultery, uh, committing the act of adultery. It's someone who has learned with God's help to subordinate their own personal desires to what is good for that other person. And now Jesus talks about what's, what a good person is when it comes to the subject of divorce. But I'm going to warn you at the outset, we've got kind of an echo thing going on here, folks. Are you on it? Yep, you are. Okay. I'll warn you at the outset, uh, these words of Jesus often look kind of weird and even harsh to us on the surface when we read them. And so they're going to, it's going to require us to dive in and and think very carefully about what Jesus is teaching and kind of get a context for it. Here's what Jesus says. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Oof, that raises some questions, doesn't it? Well, I thought adultery was if I have an affair with a married person, so why would getting a divorce from my wife cause her to become an adulteress? And if I marry a woman who's been divorced, which would mean that she's, of course, single now, well, then why would that make me an adulterer? And there are some other questions, too, we could ask around this. Now, for starters, just one thing. Let's kind of put a stake in the ground around this one. One really important thing to remember about Jesus, he's not stupid, okay? Everybody with me? Jesus is a really smart guy. Uh, he did not say things without good reason. So we are going to have to walk through this kind of one step, one thought at a time. And uh, the first item you'll notice here uh, is that Jesus is addressing men. Did you notice that? He's addressing men. Now, when he gives us this sermon, this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount, he's actually talking to a large crowd of people, men, women. I'm sure there were children there as well. But just like we saw last week around the subject of sexuality, and now this week with marriage and divorce, he's actually right here speaking specifically to men. Why? Why is that? Good question. Glad you asked. Uh, you know, is that because women are relationally superior to men and it's men who need remedial attention in this area? Is that why? No, of course not. Are you kidding? Nothing could be further from the truth, right? No, you see, in that day, it appears to be the case that pretty much only men had the power to get a divorce. Some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, only men had this power. That's why Jesus is talking to men when it comes to the subject of divorce. In the ancient world, generally, if you were a woman, your husband could divorce you anytime for any reason, just by walking out of the house and you would be stuck with the kids and probably with no money whatsoever. And in the unlikely event that you ever got any money, maybe your sons grow up and they work the farm and they make it profitable, or maybe you go to Nineveh and you hit it at blackjack, you know, big time then your original husband could return anytime he wanted to and reclaim you and the kids and the money. No man is going to marry you if husband number one who left you is lurking around out there somewhere, somewhere and can come reclaim you if it's to his advantage, you see. But that was the situation. Point being... If you were a warm woman and your marriage was on the ropes, if your marriage died, you were in deep, deep trouble. All kinds of implications to that. And interestingly, the law of Moses, that this, the law that we read in the Old Testament, when you compare it to other customs of the ancient Near East, the law of Moses was striking in the concern that it had for women in these kinds of situations. For example, Deuteronomy 24.1 says this. This is Moses uh, reflecting the will of God, and he, he writes this, and he, he says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and it goes on to describe further circumstances, but something uh, very, very important is mentioned here, and it's this thing of the certificate of divorce, writes her a certificate of divorce. That was actually a way of protecting women in the ancient world. It meant that uh, if a woman's first husband uh, would leave her, she would be given a certificate of divorce and uh, that first husband could not come back and reclaim her. 
She was set free from that marriage altogether. And on the certificate of divorce, a lot of these certificates of divorce have actually been found by archaeologists. And they would actually say, you are free to remarry any Jewish man you wish. That's a line from some of these certificates of divorce. So when Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, here is basically what he was saying in that passage that we just read a moment ago. He's basically saying, my paraphrase, you know, gang, you've all been dividing up the, the sheep and the goats, the good people and the bad people like this. The bad guys are the guys who divorce their wives just by walking out and they don't give them a certificate of divorce to protect them. Those are the bad guys. And you've been thinking marriage exists just for my fulfillment and I am free to divorce anytime I feel like it. All my options are open. As long as I give her a certificate of divorce, then I'm a righteous guy in God's eyes. I'm a good guy. I am in compliance with the law. I've given her a certificate of divorce. Now, in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has not actually been giving us laws around things like anger or new laws around things like sexuality or new laws around stuff like adultery. And next week we'll be talking about oaths and so truth-telling and such. Instead, he describes the way a person who has what he called surpassing righteousness, that is true God-given inner goodness. Well, how does that person think? How does that person feel? How does a person like that, a person living in the kingdom of Jesus, how does that person act in these kinds of situations? And you know, it's true even in our day, divorce is usually disproportionately hard on women. Well, imagine in that culture back then, it was even way worse. Unless the woman had, say, a, a rich relative and her husband walks out on her, unless a woman had a rich relative who would take care of her as kind of a quasi-servant, here, come live in my house, you can do chores around here, and so, so forth. And, of course, that was not frequently the case. She had basically two choices. She could marry another man who would kind of receive her as damaged goods. I mean, she's been through a divorce. She's got a certificate of divorce, but, you know, she's damaged goods. But, you know, I'll, I'll marry you. You could become one of my several wives. Or she could become a prostitute. That was her other option. Either way, she would be living in a sexually degraded situation. Jesus is saying that a kingdom kind of husband would recognize this, this disadvantage that his wife has and would be more concerned about the well-being of his wife than just for himself. A man who's living in the kingdom of God will reject the cultural norm, which back then said, keep your options open. Always be on the look for a spousal upgrade. And believe me, men were on the lookout for a spousal upgrade. A kingdom-minded man would put his wife's welfare above his own. He wants what is good for his wife. Now, Jesus, again, here is not giving laws. Remember, he's describing what true surpassing righteousness looks like. Do you remember earlier on, we, we looked at this passage earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
Because you see, the Pharisees had a certain outward righteousness, a certain public presentation that made them look really scrupulous when it came to keeping the law. But internally, their heart was corrupt. Jesus has pointed that out. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven, he says. Surpassing righteousness. But I know, I know, I know, I know, I get it. For many people, the question they want answered is this, is divorce ever permissible? And if so, when? Under what conditions? And so I wanna look at what the rabbis in Jesus' day taught about divorce, because that's the backdrop. That's the, the context for Jesus' teaching. That's what literally helps us make sense of what Jesus says. Now, we have already seen that Deuteronomy mentions divorce on the grounds of indecency. We've already read that. We've already seen that. In the Hebrew language, that meant on the grounds of sexual immorality. That's what indecency referred to, sexual immorality. So that, that was one ground for divorce where there, were, uh, there would be permission to divorce a spouse on the basis of sexual immorality and remarry. But then we wonder, well, what about other cases? Were there other instances, other situations in that time, in that place, in the Old Testament, uh, when divorce uh, would be legitimate? I mean, what about when there's abuse? What about when there's abandonment and that kind of stuff? And the fact is those cases were covered in the Old Testament as well. In a kind of roundabout way from a passage in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, the law covers what happens if a man takes a second wife there, which happened frequently in that culture in the ancient world. And this passage is actually designed to protect the rights of the first wife. Are you with me? I know this feels like a lecture. I don't have any good jokes later on. So hang with me here. We want to think this through. It's important we understand this. This passage is designed again to protect the rights of the first wife. This is what the passage says. If this man marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Now, once again, we see this. The Mosaic law was seeking to protect the, the woman in this uh, ancient world, in this culture. In that world, when a husband took on a new wife, a second wife, often, almost always a younger wife, okay, that younger wife tended to get the good stuff, the good food, the good shelter, the good love, and you get the idea. The law said that he had made a vow when he married his first wife to provide support, food, clothing, and love. This passage is telling us if he breaks that vow, that wife, that first wife is free to leave. She's free to get a divorce. And that, of course, would mean also getting a certificate of divorce. Now, over time, rabbis looked at these two passages, Deuteronomy 24.1, that, you know, something indecent, and Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11 there. And rabbi said, okay, here's the overarching principle involved. Marriage is essentially a vow involving three important areas. It's a vow that covers three areas. First, fidelity, sexual faithfulness. Second is provision. And that's that food and shelter and clothing kind of thing. Uh, when you take vows, you're, you're pledging yourself to care for each other, food, shelter, clothing, and love, sexual intimacy and affection and everything that goes under that heading. 
And where these vows are broken, the victim of the broken vows has the right to get divorced and remarry. That was the Old Testament understanding, the rabbinical understanding of divorce and marriage. Rabbis would debate, of course, what constituted breaking these three vows. You know, what exact, how much food do you have to give them? She eats a lot. You know, I mean, that, there was a debate going around like that. What kind of clothing? I mean, can I give her burlap or is it got to be velvet? I mean, they literally debated this kind of stuff. They even made rules about conjugal love. Rabbis said husbands, I'm not making this up. Rabbis had to offer, excuse me, husbands, not rabbis. Uh, husbands had to offer to be intimate with their wives twice a week. Otherwise, the, the wife would have a grounds for divorce twice a week. How many here would take that, guys? I mean, <laughs> just asking, yeah. Uh, now, this is from the ancient rabbinic world. Sometimes rabbis would teach too that once a week was enough if the husband was a donkey driver. I'm not making that up. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's like being a trucker nowadays. You're on the road a lot, so, you know, can't offer twice. So once will have to be enough, and that would be fine. And if you were unemployed, you had to offer every night to your wife. But no, I made that. That I did make up. I didn't make the other up. But Now, did rabbis believe there could be biblical grounds for divorce around stuff like abandonment or abuse? And the answer, I hope you're with me, yes, of course they did. Abandonment was an extreme form of breaking the vow to provide, right? Abuse is an extreme form of breaking the vow to love. So that was the rabbinic framework for understanding marriage and divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament. Now, in Jesus' day, there's actually a new wrinkle, uh, a new development, if you will, and it's very significant. It's a completely new development. Uh, let me explain. Two of the most famous rabbis that lived just a few decades before Jesus was on the planet, uh, they were named Hillel and Shammai. Uh, Rabbi Hillel had a new interpretation of that passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24.1. Are you with me? Okay, stay with me. I know some of you are thinking, wow, this is like a lecture. Well, tough, hang in there. Um, Rabbi Hillel claimed that that passage in Deuteronomy 24 um, claimed that it said a man could divorce his wife for any cause at all. That's what he claimed that thing of indecency meant. And so rabbis from the Hillel school decided that this any cause divorce was available only to men, not women, only to men. Now, there were a few rare exceptions. We'll talk about that in a minute. Available only to men. And any cause literally meant any cause. Uh, they actually, uh, rabbis from this school of Hillel actually wrote down different potential causes. Rabbis said things like if she spoils the dinner, you could divorce her. That's any cause. If she walked around with her hair unbound, that was considered kind of a sensual public thing. And if she does that, you can divorce her. If she argued in a loud enough voice to be heard next door, again, not making that up, you could divorce her. This was a new kind of divorce in Jesus' day. It was the any cause divorce. Now, there was a drawback to the any cause divorce, one big drawback. It was more expensive. If you could prove, see, that your wife was guilty of breaking one of those three vows I mentioned, fidelity, provision, and love, like say, you know, she committed adultery, well, then you didn't have to pay back what was called the ketubah, the, the wedding uh, dowry or dowry, uh, dowry price. It was called the ketubah. 
This was the marriage inheritance that was promised at a wedding. But if you did the any cause divorce, just divorce her because you didn't like her cooking or something, well, then the husband had to pay back the ketubah. That had to be paid back to the bride. And so Hillel is saying there is now a new divorce option for Israel, the any cause divorce. <laughs> and again, uh, as you might expect, very soon that kind of the divorce, the any cause divorce uh, was the most popular. That was the divorce most people were getting. And many of you know uh, of a case in the Bible where this actually uh, just about happened um, when Joseph found out that his fiancee Mary was pregnant, we're told this in Matthew 1, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, in that day, even when you were engaged, of course, it required a divorce to break that engagement. I mean, engagement was really the beginning of marriage, and that's how they looked at it. You needed to get a divorce if you were engaged. Well, when the text says that Joseph thought about doing it quietly, that's not a vague adjective, actually. Actually, that's a technical term, we know. And it meant that he would not call her an adulteress in court like he could have, that instead he would just go the route of the any cause divorce. And that meant he would pay Mary the price of the ketubah and this divorce could happen quietly. And so any cause divorce is based on this interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 by Rabbi Hillel, where he says that the indecency mentioned there in Deuteronomy 24.1, that actually means any kind of cause is a legitimate cause for divorce. Now, the other popular or famous rabbi that I mentioned, Hillel was one, Shammai is his name. And he and his followers disagreed with that interpretation adamantly. They said, no way, no way. That has always meant, that Deuteronomy 24 passage has always referred, that indecency has always referred to sexual immorality. So only breaking that vow or the vows of provision and love mentioned in Exodus 21, those are the only grounds for a legal an acceptable divorce. They said the any cause divorce was wrong. And in Jesus' day, understand, this is a huge debate that goes on. People debating whether Hillel's any cause divorce is legitimate or not. We're told one time some Pharisees came to Jesus and we're told they came to test him, to trap him. And they asked him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? That's the question. And when they did that, they were not asking Jesus. They were not saying, Rabbi, is divorce always against the law? That is not what they were asking because that was not debated. Divorce was already understood to be legitimate in certain cases in the Mosaic law, right? Already settled. It was permitted in the case of breaking those vows. No rabbi would ask, is it lawful for us to follow the Mosaic law? Of course it's lawful. What they were asking is, how do you, Jesus, interpret Deuteronomy 24.1? Are you a Hillel guy or are you a Shammai guy? That was the loaded question. That was actually the trap. You see, the Pharisees already know that Jesus rejects the any cause school of interpretation. The idea that you can just divorce your wife for any reason at all. He has already talked about that. They know that Jesus is a Shammai guy. And here's why this question was a trap. 
Some of you might know the ruler of Galilee at that time. He was called Herod the Tetrarch, not Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great's son, Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod had married his first wife, right? And he had fought, but he had fallen in love with another woman, a woman by the name of Herodias. Unfortunately, Herodias happened to be married to his brother, Philip. So Herod divorced his first wife. He got an any-cause divorce, right? And he had Herodias divorce her husband. This was unusual. Remember, I said I'd come back to this. This is unusual. A woman divorcing her husband almost never happened. But if you were powerful, and if the king next door, Herod the Tetrarch, wants you as his queen and is a little more powerful than your husband, Philip, I, I get, you can get a divorce. You see, money, power, it can move mountains. And so Herodias gets a divorce. And then uh, Herod the Tetrarch marries her. That's his sister-in-law. And remember, John the Baptist talked about this. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist courageously said to Herod the Tetrarch, it is not lawful for you to have her. That's what he said. In other words, the any cause divorce is invalid. That's what John the Baptist said. Now, anybody here remember what happened to John the Baptist? How'd that go for him? You remember he, he had his head cut off because of that, because of that position, that theological position. And now Herod, we're told, is actually looking for Jesus. So if Jesus says to these Pharisees, John was right, any cause divorce is not valid, guess who these religious leaders are going to tell? They're going to tell Herod the Tetrarch. Hey, guess what? Guess what Jesus' position on this is? Same as John the Baptist, by the way. And so Jesus responds in a very crafty, very biblically wise way to this trap that the Pharisees are setting up. And this is what we read in Matthew 19. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus takes marriage, this marriage debate and the any cause divorce thing, takes that discussion all the way back to Genesis. And this is very, very loaded, this moment, when they're asking Jesus this question. Now, if you look at what God does in Genesis, you know, at one moment he's separating and another moment he's joining. He separates and then he joins together. He separates light from darkness, right? But then he puts them together to make this thing called a day, light and dark. He separates sky from earth. He separates dry land from the sea. And then he puts them together to make literally our planet, you know, the environment, this place where we live. Creation is God separating on the one hand, but then joining in certain ways to defeat chaos, to defeat evil, to make a place where human beings can live and dwell and be fruitful and experience shalom. That's peace. That's the blessing of God. And then God creates man and he makes a woman. Does anybody remember what he makes her from? Anybody? A rib, it says. And people wonder, gee, that doesn't sound scientific, you know. Well, there's an Old Testament scholar. His name is John Walton, who I really appreciate in this area. He, he writes brilliantly about this. He does, uh, he's a, an Old Testament scholar and a, and a student of ancient cultures. And he has uh, done the research, which has made it clear that that word rib is really much better translated side. That's really how we should read that and understand that. You'll even see that in the footnotes of uh, new uh, Bible translations. In other words, the writer of Genesis is not describing a process of physical construction of a woman. 
That's not what's being described there uh, in Genesis. The writer is naming God's intent about the nature of man and the nature of woman in marriage. They are created with equal worth. They stand side by side. The woman is made from the side of Adam to have a capacity of separateness to be herself, but at the same time to have oneness. So God separates day from night and sky from land and sea from dry ground. And now male and female are made to be separate so that they can in marriage be joined together. The two shall become one flesh. It's, it's sort of a picture of new creation. It's a picture of new shalom, new peace. And uh, it's a oneness of heart and a oneness of will and a oneness of servanthood when a man and a woman are joined together. And it's a, it's a picture, not a perfect picture, but it's a beautiful picture of how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate. Um, and what this means, what Jesus is saying is this, divorce is actually undoing something that was uh, made at creation. It's undoing what God intends. It's unraveling shalom. It's not a good thing to undo what God has put together. And that is why Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And that's why the Bible is so serious and so much against ideas like any cause divorce. Uh, And if you're feeling a a, a little heavy right now, if that feels kind of weighty, all this stuff that we are talking about, well, imagine Imagine, if you will, how the disciples felt when they heard Jesus say this. Um, When Jesus was done teaching, this was the disciples' response. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. That's what they said. In other words, if I'm just going to be stuck with her, who in their right mind would do that? that? That's what they're saying to Jesus. You know, if I can't get another wife or get rid of that wife, well, who would do this, Jesus? See, the Pharisees are sure that Jesus cannot be right. He just can't be right here. And so they have yet another question, Matthew 19. They say, well, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus, if that's right, if what you're saying is right, if it's so important to stay together, then why did Jesus command that we give him a certificate of divorce? And Jesus refers back to that passage. He says, Jesus, Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. He's always taking it back to the heart issue, isn't he? But it was not this way from the beginning. God didn't intend you to be able to get rid of your wife just by writing her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is getting to the real issue when it comes to grounds for divorce. And uh, as we have seen over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not, it's not external behavioral compliance that really matters. It's more the heart, what's going on inside. The problem that necessitates the tragedy of divorce is the ultimate problem of the human condition, which is hard-heartedness. Jesus didn't say Moses commanded you to get divorced. He says Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of hard-heartedness. In our day, the most common reason given for divorce is incompatibility. Incompatibility as a reason for divorce But Jesus does not say because of incompatibility, Moses said, give the woman a certificate of divorce. There's a Christian writer and thinker, very brilliant guy, um, back in the uh, uh, late 18, early 1900s, uh, G.K. Chesterton, and he said this. 
He said, I've known many happy marriages, but never, an, but never a compatible one. <laughs> the whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. <laughs> That's usually on the honeymoon, I think, but... For a man and a woman as such are incompatible. You see, there can be a breaking of the core marriage vows. Fidelity, provision, and love. But even that, you must understand, is not mechanical or legalistic grounds for divorce. You see, if your spouse breaks a vow but then is repentant, soft-hearted, wants to fix themselves this marriage then you should try to rebuild a marriage. Now, if your spouse refuses to repent, if there is a stubborn, defiant, continued decision to reject reconciliation, uh, to refuse counsel, and so if there's continued rejection of physical intimacy, if willful continuation of patterns of deceit or abandonment or stealing or cruelty, well, then divorce might be the only option. But let me give you just some pastoral advice here as we draw to a close. Pastoral advice. If you're married, grow your marriage. Don't take it for granted. Don't neglect your marriage. Don't think your marriage will just be okay on hold while you take care of everything else. Serve your spouse? What is it that they feel serves them most? What's their language that language of love is a term used? Cheer your spouse on, work at your marriage. If you're stuck in a bad marriage, get counseling, get unstuck. You know, research actually shows, this has been borne out, one of the biggest predictors of divorce is when communication in a marriage always happens with barbs attached to it. Could you help your fatherless son with his homework? You know, that kind of barb. Could you get your fat butt off the couch and take out the trash? That's a barb. Could you turn off the game just long enough to help just a little? Could we make love sometime this quarter? (laughs) Barbs. And I have to tell you, you know, Holly and I, our, our marriage is very, very, very imperfect because of her. But the truth is, being married to Holly is really the greatest human gift. I have. It really is. Uh, Sometimes uh, she is my number one fan and sometimes she is my number one critic. Those two actually do go together. They really do. Um, And when she is in fan mode, uh, when she's cheering me on or encouraging me, affirming me or believing in me, there really isn't anything that charges me up more, that fills my spirit more, that gives me strength more than that. And I obviously, I absolutely love it when she's being my number one fan. 
when she is in critic mode challenging me or confronting me or getting in my face or on my back, I mostly hate it. <laughs> but I very, very often need it. And I would just say, if you're married, here's your assignment. Your assignment is to ask your spouse today, how are we doing, really? What is the measure of our marriage, really? What can we do to make our marriage better, really? What do we need to do, really? How can I better serve you, really? And then shut up and listen and take notes and take action. Don't be defensive. Listen, really. I know people who take their businesses, their career, their finances, and their health very seriously. They've got routines built into their schedule around all of these things, and yet they hardly ever even think about their marriage. And here's the deal. Every marriage can grow because every person can grow. And if your marriage is hard, and believe me, Holly and I have known plenty of those times or seasons when the marriage relationship is hard, then seek wise counsel, pray, read, ask friends for prayer, get help, get support. It's worth making heroic efforts to save your marriage while it's savable because marriage is what God has joined together. Some of you are working on marriages that are hard right now. And that's great. Stick with it. Work harder. This church is a place where everybody is cheering you on if you're doing that. We're not shocked if you're doing it. We're cheering for you if you're doing it. This church is a place where everybody is for you. But by the way, guess how many perfect marriages we have in this church? Anybody want to guess? Yeah, zero. You got that right. Every marriage is a marriage between two great big sinners held together by the grace of God. That's what we believe. You know, there are some churches where there's this kind of separation. Married people are good people. Divorced people are bad people. Understand, that's precisely the kind of superficial approach to who's good and who's not that Jesus is challenging in his message that we call the Sermon on the Mount. I say all that because maybe you've been through a divorce and you wonder what God has left for you. Is all that's left for you plan B? It's not going to ever be plan A. You're just going to, you know, get a plan B. Question for you as we answer that question. Who do you think is the most spiritually significant divorced person in the Bible? I first thought, the first thing that, one that came to my mind was the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John 4. Remember that lady? Uh, you might know her story. She'd been through five husbands and either five divorces or deaths. We don't know, maybe, uh, we don't know, but the five husbands. And when she was having her conversation with Jesus, she was living with yet another man. And Jesus honors this woman with the longest conversation recorded with anyone in the Bible, you know, the, the, any conversation Jesus has. And she came to believe in Jesus, and then she went and told her village, a Samaritan village, all about Jesus, this Jewish Messiah. And we're told the whole village, practically everybody in the village, turns to Jesus. 
So I think this woman might actually also be the first evangelist that we have recorded in scripture. But fact of the matter is, um, uh, she is not the most significant divorced person in the Bible. Of course, that would be who? God. The main picture that God used to describe his relationship with people, with his people, was that of marriage. Uh, Israel is often referred to as the bride of God, the wife of God. And then God makes this statement through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Year after year, after decade after decade, century after century, Israel was unfaithful to God. You see, God knows the humiliation of rejection. And God knows the pain of betrayal from hard-hearted people like me and like you. And God says in the Bible through the prophet that he's been through a divorce. God is a divorcee. And so God invented the very first divorce recovery program. It's called the gospel. And the price for the course is a broken body. The price for the course is spilled blood. And Jesus paid that price for you on the cross. He was the first one to go through that program. And that program, I'm telling you, is still in session. You see, the deep reality is we are all of us, everyone, complicit in this divorce that God talks about. We have all been unfaithful to God. And that's why any church that divides people into non-divorced first-class Christians and divorced second-class Christians is theologically errant and, frankly, spiritually destructive. On the most important spiritual level, we have all already been unfaithful. And we all need the cross. So pastoral advice, go there. Go to the cross and get in community with people who keep going to the cross. Married, single, doesn't matter. Divorced, doesn't matter. Do you know that a recent study, this is true, a recent study of, I guess I should have to quit saying this is true because you're gonna think about a lot of what I say is just lies, but (laughs) I don't know. I read some of this stuff sometimes. I'm like, really? That's amazing. But anyway, so this is true. The ancient, there's a recent study, not an ancient study, a recent study of 10,000 seniors graduating from Yale University showed that loners, people without community and connection, were twice as likely to die from all causes over a five-year period than people with close friendships and connections. Twice as likely. And that's why, and I've said this before, the motto that we have for our small group ministry is join a small group or die. (laughs) Because you see, this is a place where everybody is welcome and nobody is perfect. And here we're not broken up into married people, never married people, divorced people. Here we're just one big conglomeration of sinners. Sinners who need Jesus and who need each other if we're gonna make relationships and marriages work. And so we follow Jesus 
together. This is not a solo thing. It's why we gather in this room. If you neglect gathering here, I'm telling you, you're neglecting one of the key things God gives you to help you make relationships work. Just being reminded of what he says and who he is and what he teaches. You see, we live as apprentices, followers of Jesus, and we do this together in the reality of his kingdom of grace. And that's why, that's why healing is possible. It's why strong marriages are possible. It's why forgiveness is possible because grace is possible. Pray with me. Father, when we think about relationships, we all of us just cringe at times because we know we've got relationships that aren't what they're supposed to be. They're not right. They need fixing. They need reconciliation. All of us, God, who've ever entered into a marriage know how difficult it can be to keep reconciling and reconciling and forgiving and forgiving and loving and loving and serving and serving, even when sometimes it just doesn't feel at all like that's what we want to do. But Lord, what you have joined together separate. And so... Father, give us the grace to stick to, to work hard, to keep improving, to keep investing in our relationships, especially in our marriages. And Father, where marriages are breaking or are broken, where divorces have happened, God, would you give grace? Grace to grow, grace to hold on to who you are, Grace to know that you don't leave us or forsake us if we have been forsaken by someone. Father, let us be a community of apprentices following Jesus together and growing. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.